Welcome to Five or Flop, a podcast for the best and worst historical fiction has to offer. I'm your host, Erin. And I'm Grace. And each week we'll be reading a different historical fiction novel to see if they're a five or a flop. Season one is reading around the world. So this time, Erin, it's our season finale. I know. I can't believe we've made it 12 weeks. Yes. So we are making our very last stop in the country of New Zealand. Which we're counting as part of Australia. Yes. You know, Oceania, Oceania. I guess. Perfect. Australia adjacent. And we'll be reading The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton. And this should make for a good season finale because I know we do not think of this book the same way. Exactly. We've had some differences of opinion before, but they're really only like matters of scale. Like we both liked Fruit of the Drunken Tree, but I liked it more than you. We both liked Homegoing. You liked it more than me. Exactly. But we have a pretty dramatic difference of opinion on The Luminaries. But we're getting a little bit of ahead of ourselves. So Grace, anything exciting for you this week? Yes. I had an extremely exciting week, Erin. Oh? Yes. Let me tell you. So we go to, I have a group of trivia friends, and we go to literary trivia every other week. Okay. And I know about this because it is also my friend group and my roommate who goes. Yes. We all have the same friends. We've established that so many times (laughs) by now. And we go to trivia, and we've been going every other week for more than a year. They and are committed. We love trivia. And this week, for the very first time, we won. Oh, my God. Yeah, this was big news in the group chat when it hit. Oh, yeah. We won a $25 gift card and mostly pride. Like, mostly I feel like pride. We don't even need the gift card. We're just so happy to have to say we can Congratulations. Have won Thank you. I feel very accomplished. And in the world in the words of world-renowned dance teacher Abby Lee Miller, the only thing harder than getting to the top is staying there. Oh so, yeah. you better so, bring it next time. Well, we'll see what happens in 2 weeks because the normal trivia guy wasn't there. Okay. He had like he owns this like trivia company and they have a lot of different hosts yeah. that work for it and there was like a substitute host okay so you know not to be placing myself too much but hopefully we still win when kyle comes back that's the real test right um and can you please share with the pod what your team name is we are click clack moo i don't know if any of you listening i would hope so because i thought this was a very popular book and i've learned that that is not the case but there is a children's book called click clack moo cows that type Yeah, I know that one. Okay, well, thank you. To me, in my head, it's in the same level of children books as uh, Chicka Chicka Boom Boom. Yeah, yeah, it's that ilk. Like, I feel like Click Clack Moo, Cows That Type was doing for my era what, like, The Day the Crayons Went On Strike is doing for kids of this era. Okay, gotcha. So we've been married to that. Like, we, you were there. We were the pretty committee the very first time that we went. Yes, and that was the worst because there was another team named the pretty committee. So I said, okay, we'll be the prettier committee. And then they left. Yeah, so we Sorry to them. Hopefully, just a coincidence, hopefully we didn't bully them into leaving. (laughs) Erin, I've rattled on about trivia. Erin, how was your week? My week has been okay. Kind of sucks because I'm currently breaking in a pair of leather shoes. And I don't know if you have ever done this, but my feet are in a lot of pain. I've just been like clomping around in my apartment with them, kind of freaking my dog out a little bit. Really painful. So I have a lot of blisters right now. So I'm not doing as great as you are. Are you wearing like band-aids, like more than one pair of socks? More than one pair of socks. And I got leather spray, which is supposed to stretch it out. I don't know. I got a gift card from work. So I use that to buy my leather spray. Okay. Okay. And do you have an occasion these shoes are going to be worn to? Like, do you have a deadline? No, no, nothing in particular. Just that I 
am trying to, now that I'm like an adult, you know, I turned 25 in August. I'm an adult now. I want to have like nicer quality clothes that can kind of last for longer. I completely get that. So like instead of buying like shitty boots from Target, I'm going to like invest in nicer boots. But that means I also have to break them in and they really hurt my feet. Okay. Well, praying for you. Thank you. I appreciate your support in this time. What have you been reading to distract yourself from your blisters and foot pain? Yes. Well, as we know, when this podcast is airing, it is pretty early in 2024. And that's a good time for, you know, resolution, self-evaluation. New Year, new me. New Year, new me. I'm reading The Year of Less by Kate Flanders, I believe is her name. And she is, well, let me preface by saying I really like self-help books and like money management books and all that jazz. definitely do. I really do. That's probably a big part of my story graph as well, if anyone stalks me on there. But this book, she is a blogger who had blogged about her journey, like kind of transforming her life, paying off a ton of debt, getting sober. So it's topics I'm really interested in. Lots of stuff. Yeah, lots of heavy stuff. And then this book in particular is about a year of her life. I think it was like her 29th, after her 29th birthday, she decided to stop spending money for a year. Ooh. On, you know, any non-essentials. Yeah. Like, she's not going shopping for clothes, anything like that. And she has a very detailed list of what she can and can't spend money on. Which, Grace, if you remember, I did no spend January last year. So it's very much a year long of no spend January. Okay. That seems hard. And it starts in July and each chapter is a month. So I'm only just on August now. I'm pretty early into it. But I'm really enjoying it. Well, I imagine that, like, the longer you go for the most part, the easier it gets. Like, you get used to not spending money, yeah. I would imagine. Like, you would still be tempted, but I think July, August, et and, cetera, would be the hardest parts of that. Experiment. Oh, yeah. And I think she structured it really well because it's not just... it's kind of cold turkey but not really like she's also a person who's alive and wants to enjoy life yeah. so obviously she's still like she's still traveling she's allotted like certain times a month she can eat out at restaurants just no takeout no coffee that sort of thing okay so i okay. really like how she structured it i think for someone trying to do the challenge it's probably the most realistic way you can do it yeah now am i gonna do this Probably not, but I'm hoping it'll continue on my money mindfulness journey. And take some inspiration, maybe rather than following the literal plan. Exactly. Grace, what about you? What are you reading? Oh my gosh. I've thrown myself fully into historical romance. Oh my God. The past like two weeks, week and a half, I've read like four of them, like back to back. I'm just having so much fun. Like, I need I need to connect you with my friend Lex because when we started this pod, I asked my group chat, my group chat of other friends, not my DC friends, um, for book recommendations for the pod. And Lex goes, um, the only thing I have for you is historical romance, but I can give you so many of them. And Lex is so right. Like, here's the thing about historical romance. There are a lot of them that are just bad, like mid in a bad way. Mm -hmm. But also there's a lot of them that are... Fine leading, leaning flop. Yeah. But then there's also a lot of them that are like mid, but good mid. Okay. Like a book that you don't have to think too much about. Yeah. Like you're just reading it and you're like, oh my God, the Earl Goblin is dancing with his estranged wife. The writing is not good, but I'm just enjoying what I'm being given. That's how I feel when I watch Bridgerton, which is historical romance. Yeah. Because Bridgerton... It's not great, but it's so fun to watch. Like, when the one guy freaked out because a bee landed on the girl he was into. The bee killed his dad, Aaron. <laughs> you don't understand. That scene, uh, I think I watched that before I had even met you. That scene cracked me up. But I can't I, wait to watch the new season with you. Oh, my gosh, yes. Love Bridgerton. I am really weird about it because I love Bridgerton season two. Like, okay. I've watched it more than once. Like, I'm obsessed with Bridgerton season two. And I never watched the first season. And I don't know if I will. <laughs> season one, people said it was very porny. 
which I don't yes, have a problem it with. It was. Which I don't have a problem with. But season two is about pining. And season I love two pining. Was, season two was how I taught my boyfriend what the word yearning meant. <laughs> Right? Does it? Yeah. That is what that means. That is what yearning is. Yeah. So I loved Bridgerton season two, and I did read all of the books. Okay. See, um, I only read the first book, and I liked the show more. See, I read all the books. There are eight Bridgerton books, uh-huh. and of all of them, the first book, which is the first season of the show, there was only one that was worse. Like, I didn't oh, like okay. that one very much at all. Well, that makes sense. You're not going to watch that season. And I do like shows like that because it's very self-contained. Like, yeah, you I don't need to watch all of it. No. And then it's the same thing with a romance. You know they're going to fall in love and get together. Exactly. So if I'm like, I don't need context for season two that I'm not getting because I'm like, okay, well, the people in the first season fell in love. And then yeah, there you and go. that's fair. And that leads us to the season you're currently on. Yeah. All right, should we get into the luminaries? All right, we're going to do a hard left turn away from historical romance. Absolutely no romance. Actually, a little romance in this book. It's not important, but... A little bit. And I will say, we can discuss what we think about this quote later, but in the back of my copy, it had an interview with Eleanor Catton, the author. And she said that the luminaries was her attempt to take like a very literary cerebral kind of novel Mm -hmm. and not make it like a drag so okay well i have some thoughts we'll leave that where it is and we'll come back to that so let's hit you with the synopsis great it is 1866 and walter moody has just come to stake his claim in new zealand's booming gold rush on the stormy night of his arrival he stumbles across a tense gathering of 12 local men who have met in secret to discuss a series of unexplained events A wealthy man has vanished, a prostitute has tried to end her life, and an enormous cache of gold has been discovered in the home of a luckless drunk. Moody is soon drawn into a network of fates and fortunes that is as complex and exquisitely ornate as the night sky. Richly evoking a mid-19th century world of shipping, banking, and gold rush boom and bust, The Luminaries is at once a fiendishly clever ghost story, a gripping page-turner, and a thrilling novelistic achievement. And let's just add here how long this book was, because I do think that's important to know up front. It was like, what, 860 pages, something like that? Yes. When we said that this was a really good book to end the season on, not only because we disagree about its quality. Because we need a break. (laughs) (laughs) This book was so long. Well, also, it's the longest book that we've read. It's an over 800-page book. And also... This book is most notable for winning the 2013 Man Booker Prize. Now just called The Booker, but the prize that celebrates essentially the best British English language novel. It's Mm -hmm. the British equivalent of the Pulitzer. Yeah, so this Um, is like, this book is a very big deal. Yes, it is definitely the most acclaimed of, I think, the books that we have read, Mm -hmm. with the exception of maybe Homegoing. But this is like really up there. Um, I'd say The Land Remembered is kind of acclaimed by Florida public school teachers, but anyway. It is the popular vote, perhaps. But yeah, so (laughs) this is like a big, sweeping, long novel for us to really like go out with a bang on. So before we get into the book itself, I feel like we need to do a bit more of an explainer than just the synopsis. Mm -hmm. We're going to lead with the history. But first, let's talk about Eleanor Catton, because she is actually super interesting as an author figure. So Eleanor Catton, I could not figure out for the life of me if she is like if she is English or if she is a New Zealander. Okay. She has lived extensively in both of those places. So she's just kind of she is part of both of those countries. Yeah. I can't really say 
for sure where she's from, mm-hmm. unfortunately. I found conflicting information about that. But she's written three books, the first of which was called The Rehearsal, the second is The Luminaries, and the third is Burnham Wood, which just came out in uh, late 2023. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's a book, like 10 years between books. She was yeah. Obviously, she was working at it for a while. The Luminaries came out in 2013 and won the Man Booker that year, which comes with a prize of 50,000 pounds. Wow, that's a lot of money. Yes, so not only is The Luminaries the longest book to ever win the Man Booker at 840 pages. Mm -hmm. Eleanor Catton is the youngest author to have ever won the Man Booker. And when she won it in 2013, when the Luminaries came out, she was 28. And yet again, because I know I mentioned this on another episode about another author who was like in their mid-20s and had a bunch of acclaim. What the fuck are we doing with our lives? (laughs) And as I said then, I will say now, we have a podcast. Yeah, that's fair. So, and then the Luminaries was adapted into a miniseries in 2020. It came out on the BBC, and Mm -hmm. she was the main writer for that. And also, crazily, she wrote the adaptation of Emma with Anya Taylor-Joy. Really? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, that was super random, and I was super tickled to find that. Because I was like, all of this stuff, I would not have been like, oh, yeah, and she also screenwrote. 2020. So that, I wonder if she does more screenwriting and that's why there's some gaps between her novels too? Maybe I didn't find anything else. That might have just been her most noteworthy. Yeah, it's possible that she was writing The Luminaries because that's her show and in the Mm -hmm. process she got pulled into Emma. Yeah, she could have. Uh, Maybe someone on The Luminaries was like, oh, this person is doing really good work. Hey, Mm -hmm. director of Emma, you're looking, or I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, that was crazy to me. And otherwise though, Neither of us had read any of her books before because they are they are pretty cerebral and there are only three. Actually, though, I do have both of them marked on my to read on Storygraph, which is kind of funny because once you hear my review of this book, you're going to be a little surprised. But the other two books seem much more up my alley. So I do really want to read both of them. Neither of them are particularly long. I will say my only knowledge of Eleanor Catton, when we put her on this list, you might wonder... Why, if you're doing a weekly book podcast, would you choose to read an 800-page book? We didn't know. We, listen, (laughs) when we set up this idea of doing the different continents... God, we struggle. Australia is not pulling its weight. I'm just going to say it. I don't think we have that many Australian listeners to offend. I hope we have them. I hope they're and not offended. And if you do, if you are Australian, if you have knowledge of Australian history, write a book. Write a and book. You're first on the list. Because there aren't any. We were really, I don't want to say scraping the bottom of the barrel because I don't want to imply that the books we selected were poor. I do want to say we were not spoiled for choice. No, we were limited in choice and also just availability with what we could easily access at the library. Yes. So by the time we picked the Luminary, when we realized it was 800 pages, we were kind of just stuck. Yeah, it, we didn't have much option here. And especially because, Aaron, you read it on your flight to Japan. Oh my god, yeah. Before I get into that, I do want to give our usual disclaimer. Our judgments are based on the book and the characters within them rather than any real historical figures they may have been based on, mm-hmm. which I don't believe is the case with this one. Mm-hmm. Um And also spoilers. And I will say, though, I think it matters way less if you care about spoilers because this book is a hard peanut to crack. Yeah, I I don't know how much spoiling we're going to be doing because I think we'll be talking about (laughs) it and I think stuff will go over your head. I'm going to be honest. I still don't know what the hell went on in this book. So I'm not spoiling anything. When you read it, it was on your flight to Japan. Yeah, okay. you read it pretty quickly given the book is long because you were doing it in like 
a sitting or like yeah two I sittings. read this book in probably like I would say two and a half sittings because it was my flight to Japan my flight home and then about like 10 minute spurts while I was in Japan mm-hmm. so I did read it in about two and a half sittings and I do have to precursor my opinion is tainted because I started this book when I was already two Benadryl pills deep into my flight which is a dangerous game so when I went back to look at my notes for this well so I picked it up I've read like a huge chunk and then I picked it up the next time and I couldn't tell you a single thing that happened. So I went back to look at my notes. They were incoherent. They were just, they were not correct at all. I thought this book was about books and not boats for a while. It was a mess. So I am tainted by that. However, I'm tainted by a lot of things with this book. Well, you know, a book, you can't always have the perfect conditions to be sitting down and reading a book. No. no, Especially one as long as this. You can't be precious about your time. I don't know if you or our listeners remember, but in an earlier episode of the pod when I was talking about my trip, I mentioned about how my all my books undownloaded from my iPad and I had to um, purchase airline Wi-Fi for it to yes. re-download. Tragic. This was the book. So there was an added stress of that factor of having to spend money on airplane Wi-Fi to re-download a book that I didn't like. Poor associations with this book. Yeah, there, there were a lot, a lot of things going on here. Yeah. This time I want to do something a teeny bit different than what we normally do mm-hmm. and do the history first. Okay. Because I guess controversial thing to say, okay, which is I don't think the history is the most important part of this book. No, I fully agree with you actually. Yeah. And I'll get a little into why. Like I said before, my copy had an interview with Eleanor Catton in it. And she was talking about her choice to write about the New Zealand gold rush. So Mm -hmm. I'll give you a little bit of detail on that. But really, she said her first book, The Rehearsal, it was set in a high school. And it wasn't associated with any time or place. Mm -hmm. And she wanted to write a book that was really rooted in a specific time and place. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the story... Obviously, details of it would have to be changed if it was not set in the gold rush. But I think she could have told the story that she wanted to tell set in another time or another place. But she chose this one. And I agree. And this is different than my opinion for the cartographer's secret, where I thought the the history of it, the historical setting didn't really matter in a negative way. I feel that in a positive way for the luminaries. Yes. I think this is not necessarily a bad thing, that Mm -hmm. it's not like a biography of a mining town. Yeah. The strength of this novel lies in the construction of it, in the interconnectedness of all of the characters, the complexity of the mystery. For good or for ill, those are the central components. Yes. And then I think all of this gold rush stuff is flavoring, is a backdrop, is extra. Yeah. Is a framing for all of the meaty stuff Mm -hmm. that is this book. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. So let's just chat for a little bit about the basis of this book, and then we'll get into the technical stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is set during the 1860s West Coast New Zealand gold rush. I believe specifically in 1866, in the first half of 1866. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chapters take place from January to roughly August, I believe. And the actual gold rush in New Zealand only lasted a few years, Mm -hmm. from 1864 to 1867, I believe, are the like dates that kind of have been agreed upon as to border it. 1864 was the first like major strike. And then by 1867, people were not really finding anything 
mm-hmm. we're fi- not finding much substantive gold anymore after that. So then it kind of petered out. Uh, but all of it is set in the town of Hokitika, mm-hmm. which is in the you know west coast of New Zealand, obviously, which is a real town. Uh, they have a really cute tourist website that okay. has a that has a luminaries quote on it. Uh, it's a very small town. The population as of June of 2023 was 3,100. Hmm. So it's a cute, small little town. They have a lot of gold rush history that I think they're trying to use as a draw for tourists. They have a lot of buildings. They have hotels and mm-hmm. things like that that were around in the gold rush era. But they also have a lot of outdoor like hiking and boating. And, you know, it's a very close to nature kind of place. Okay, cool. So those are their two big tourist things nowadays. Uh, but in its peak year, I could not find exact numbers on how many people were residing in Hokitika during the 1866 okay. period. Uh, the best estimate that I can find is maybe 6,000. So okay. roughly double what it is now. Yeah. Not huge, but you know, but there were about 72 hotels in Hokitika, mm-hmm. which is just an insane amount. So it can show you how many people were flocking there for trying to find gold and then leaving. Okay, gotcha. So that is the backdrop for this book, which is an extremely complicated and interwoven mystery. It's going to sound confusing as hell as we describe it, as it was when, at least when I read it. But I think we should start with the structure, probably. Yes. Because it is a very interesting structures. It is very intentionally structured. Yes, it is. So for about like, what, the first third-ish of the book, as it says in the synopsis, this guy Moody shows up to town to, you know, get involved with the gold rush. The synopsis implies that Moody is going to be like the central character. I would argue he's the least important of all of the characters. Yeah, he's really not. There's no like main central character whose point of view you get throughout the whole book. Mm. But anyway, so he shows up at like this quasi-town meeting, and these 12 men are discussing these series of weird events, all of which was talked about in the synopsis that's been going on in town. Which is the death of a man and the finding of a lot of gold in his house, Yep. the disappearance of a wealthy prospector, and a sex worker, they use the W word to refer to her the whole time, so we're not going to do that. No, we'll call her Uh, by her name, Anna. And Anna, a sex worker, is found passed out in the middle of the road. Uh, Those things happen the same day. And they assume she tried to kill herself. That's the broad assumption. Yes. Which is something she was then jailed for. Yes. But anyway, so the men are gathered to talk about these events, and... For about the first third of the book, it's switching point of view and each of the different men, who I'm not even going to try to name them all because, frankly, they're all kind of interchangeable. I'm not able to do that. But they're each recounting, like, their piece of what they know. Yes. And then it's supposed to all come together and, like, paint a picture of what supposedly actually happened. Yes. I did not clock this while I was reading, and I don't know if you did either, mainly because of the Benadryl situation. <laughs> but in hindsight, I was like, oh, duh. So the first the first part, it's 12 parts. The book is 12 parts. And that's to reflect the signs of the Zodiac, which we'll get into in a moment. Mm-hmm. But the book is 12 parts, and each part is half the length of the part before. I did not. What? Yeah. Well, then I was like, oh, that makes total sense because part one is roughly 360 pages. If you're reading an 800-page book that's 12 parts and part one is 360 pages, <laughs> you can imagine that's the part that drags. And I, it does. I fully just thought it was poor pacing. No. I did not notice that was intentional. Part two is 180 pages. 
part three is 90 pages, and so on and so forth. And by the time you get towards the end, the the like the parts are paragraphs. They're wow. Really, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I didn't notice that at all. And so I think the again the number twelve that ties into the other thing which is important in the structuring of the book. Whether or not it was important to our experience reading it, I think a lot of the significance of, of it I found doing research after the fact. But a lot of the structure of this book is rooted in astrology. And that does not necessarily come through in the plot, but I yes. think like if each new part has the sign of the zodiac on it, like it shows where yeah. all of the planets are in relation to the constellations at the beginning of each part. And that I think is if you didn't have that printed on every page, you wouldn't miss it. But it was really crucial for Eleanor Catton in her construction of the book. Okay, I can get that. And this is something I want to say up front. Eleanor Cadden, obviously a phenomenal writer. Like the amount of thought that went into crafting this book is absolutely unfathomable. However, I hated this book. For me, this was a massive flop because as a reader, it was way too comp. Even if I hadn't have had Benadryl, it would have been way too complicated for me to enjoy it. It was dense. And I, we've been hinting at this. I liked it. I liked the book. However, even when Eleanor Catton said, like, oh, this is, I think that cerebral literary novels are always so, like, dour. I wanted one to be fun. I didn't I was think like, this was fun. Girl, what are you talking about? This book is not fun at all. I thought it was a good book, but it was not lighthearted and not, I would not no. call it an easy read. I think for me, one of the worst parts was the characters. And I did, I read somewhere researching this book that they were supposed to be kind of interchangeable. But for me, that just, no one stood out to me. I wasn't, I didn't, wasn't committed to any of these characters. Maybe Anna a little bit. Because she was the girl. Because she was the only girl. No, there were two girls, but she was the only girl who was not a villain. Yeah, there was two girls and one of them was evil. So, well, this is again something that in hindsight made a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. Going into the book, it did absolutely nothing for me. In the front of your copy or your ebook, whatever you were reading, yeah. did it have like a list of all of the characters? It did, but because I was reading it on my iPad, I could not easily go back and access it. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of ineffective for me. Yeah. It's kind of like when you open up a fantasy book and there's a big map and you're like, all right. There was a map in this one too. There was. Uh, but when you open up a fantasy book and you see like a big map and you're like, okay, this is relevant information, but I don't know which parts of this are important yet. So I'm just going to not bother with it right now. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I was. But when you open up the book, it has the 12 men as each of the 12 signs of the Zodiac. Okay. The opening of the book when Walter Moody walks into this town meeting and there are all of those men talking about the strange events. They are each one sign of the Zodiac. Mm -hmm. And then you have the main players in the mystery, which are Anna, Stains. Emery Staines, who is the man who disappeared, the two... For simplifying sake, I'm going to say the two evil people. Because there are two and, evil people. Carver and Lydia. Carver and Lydia. Our girl boss, Lydia, who is evil. <laughs> She's a girl boss, though. And then they are the planets. Oh, okay. So they move through and around. That the makes sense. Okay. Interesting. Yes. And then there is the character of our murdered man, who is dead when the book starts. Mm -hmm. His name is Crosby Wells. Mm -hmm. And he is the Earth. Oh, okay. So he is the center axis point for our viewing of oh. the sky. See, and I do think this is where reading books on my iPad is a detriment because 
that would have been really helpful throughout for mm-hmm. me. Just like I read Homegoing and also The Henna Artist in hard copy, mm-hmm. and both of those had like character lists and obviously not as detailed as this one. Mm-hmm. But it was a lot easier to flip back, and if I caught myself getting lost, I could quickly write that issue. Yes. So when I first opened it before I started reading, it's this list of 20 people in the front, and I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what to do with this. I'm just going to keep going. Mm-hmm. And then I don't even think that referencing it in the middle would have helped me because I did read it in a physical copy yeah. for most of it. I switched to ebook when I left for Thanksgiving because I'm not carrying around a 900-page book. <laughs> because I just didn't understand the significances of the astrology. And even then, I'm underselling it because Eleanor Catton used the actual like position of the sky in 1866. She did her research. To inform the characters. Like she said, Francis Carver was Mercury. And in January, the I'm pulling these exact ones out of my ass, but it's something like Gemini was in, yeah. was under Mercury. So therefore, the character that was Gemini was going to be influenced by Carver. Oh, wow. So she constructed the plot using the signs, the astrological signs. Okay, which is insane. Yeah, which is insane, which maybe contributes to how crazy convoluted the story was. But I think it was, again, if I had never known that, I would still be able to read the book and understand it. But it provides another level of understanding to how the book was structured. Because we both agreed, even when... We finished when I finished the book and I decided that I liked it. Uh-huh. We both agreed, like, yeah, I don't really know what all that astrology stuff is about. Yeah, I had no clue. And for me, that was a detriment. I don't think I should have to research the book heavily to understand the symbolism. Yeah, I mean... And we, that's kind of my basis for any book I read. I mean, we can argue all day long about what kind of books we put value on as a yeah. society. As like, if it's, like, sad and hard to read and complicated, that means it's a good book. Because mm-hmm. um, I think that, you know, definitely looking at, like awards given out, like that seems to track. But definitely it informed Eleanor Catton's putting it together. Mm -hmm. But all of the symbolism, we, neither you nor I are passionate followers of astrology. No. And we did not pick up on it. The the extent of astrology that I enjoy are those Twitter posts that are like, create your outfit based on your zodiac. Yeah, I love that. But like the actual knowledge of it, I don't follow. No. No, not at all. There was a lot more I struggled with in the book, still even just structurally, though. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the flashbacks. Okay. Because when you get to the later point in the books, there's, okay, so the whole first part is just like the retelling the story. And I don't consider that a flashback because that's just them recounting. And then you go into the trial for Anna and Emery Staines. Spoiler, he comes back alive, which we'll get into that, too. But then towards the end, you get a series of flashbacks about how Anna and Emery Staines, who are like a couple, both come to New Zealand on the same boat and they were like born on the same day under the same moon. So they're They're like same. They're old saints. They're like fated to be together. I hated the flashbacks. I didn't want them. I didn't need them. It didn't add anything for me. I wish it had just been explained to us in another fashion, kind of how they got to be where they were, because... I got the sense that Lydia basically made Anna become a prostitute. Like, she... Essentially, yes. She tricked her. Into, she tricked her into, into selling herself into her servitude. Yes. To, she, she put her in debt and was like, oh, here's a convenient way for you to get out of the debt that you owe me. Yes. And that is by being a sex worker. It felt very, like, tell, not show in just a flashback. Yeah. I felt... I understand that. 
if the rest of the book is going to be so complicated, just make the whole entire thing complicated and don't give us these like baby flashbacks. Mm -hmm. I had conflicting feelings about the flashbacks. I liked their information. I especially liked getting to see Emery Staines because for the bulk of the book, Emery Staines is missing. Missing when you show up. Missing presumed dead. Missing presumed dead. When you show up in the book, that's he's gone. And all they can talk about is Emery Staines, he's gone. He's a very rich man. Mm-hmm. Those that's all you get, basically. And he's somehow related to this mystery, but you don't know how. I also thought he was gonna be old as hell. Well, he was like was 18. The, well, that was the thing. You think like, oh, he's gonna be some old rich man, and he shows up and he's this young He's a twink. Naive. <laughs> Oh my god, Twink Death Twink Death. Emery Staines disappeared. <laughs> no, but he's this like young man who is very cheerful and naive. Like there's yeah. a part where it's like he would rather be happy and get tricked by someone once than be cynical and never be tricked. Mm-hmm. He gets gambled out of like eight, That's how I felt eight reading this book. Or something. <laughs> He gets swindled out of like eight shillings and he's like, well, it's okay because I'm like having a good day or whatever. I don't know. But I liked getting to see him because he was so different than what I expected. That, I, I didn't think about that. But yeah, that is true. The other thing. Here's the only other thing, though. You're in the present day and you are at in the present day. You're at the trial for Emery and Anna. You don't need to know what for what the trial is for. We can't even go into all the details. You don't need to it's know. gonna take this pod would be four hours long if we tried to explain the entire plot to you. No. We're gonna commission Mike's Mike on YouTube to make like four oh my God, we two need hour it. videos breaking down the plot of the luminaries because it's just not possible. Mike's Mike, please sponsor us. But they're at the trial and again, the evil guy is named Carver, and someone runs in and says, Carver has been murdered, his head has been bashed in. <laughs> And I'm like, oh my god, tension, like, great. And it does that thing that TV shows do intelligently where they, like, leave you on a cliffhanger and then at the beginning of the next episode they're doing something completely different and not addressing the cliffhanger because it keeps you interested, you know? But I'm reading the end of the book and I'm like, oh boy, I can't wait to get back to the present day to see what happened. And the book ends in the flashback. Yeah. At first, I was like, wow, it would have been great if we knew who killed the evil guy. And then I looked it up, and it was like, oh, using literary context clues, it's this character who did it. <laughs> and I'm like, clearly, I was not using those context clues. But that point where you kind of get that cliffhanger, and then it just ends somewhere else, kind of reminded me of Hamnet, where they're watching mm. the play Hamlet. And then and we wanted yeah. that scene after. And then we didn't get it. Or however, not even we wanted. We just expected it. However, scene. worked a lot better in Hamnet for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love I liked that where it ended, it was poignant. I thought it was sweet. It ended on like a happy moment with Emery and Anna falling Yeah, they do, they do get together in the end. Like so it works out. It was sweet. And then you know like, you know the outcome of the trial even if you don't return to it. So you know like, okay, this like it's will happen fine. Yeah. And they'll be fine and blah, blah, blah. And evil is defeated and all that. What but I it was just an abrupt ending essentially. One thing I really hated, and this is relevant to the trial as well, is that the book hinted at being magical realism and then turned. Okay. We talked about this Briefly. for a little bit, and then I think we were like, no, we should save it for the podcast. Exactly. That's I what happens when we spend to hear, too much time together. I would love to hear what you have to say about this, because I did not get that at all. 
Okay. So basically, it's hinting at all of this stuff in the first part of the book where the men are recounting the story. There's one part where Anna fires a gun and it should have hit her in the shoulder, but the gun misfired and they couldn't find the bullet. And then Anna has been addicted to opium and then she just stops and completely fine and doesn't have any withdrawal at all. And it's kind of hinting at that. And then at the same time, we're learning that her and Emery Staines are old sames and that they're like tied together. And this is told to us by Lydia, who's like an astrologist. And then in the trial, we find out. So in my head, I'm like, okay, so they're like magically connected. Like this is going to be some whole thing. Because then when Emery Staines comes back, he's the one suffering from the bullet wound. He's the one going through opium withdrawal. So in my head, I'm like, okay, this is magical realism. Like it's going to be something about how they're united by the stars in astrology. And that's how I thought astrology was coming into play. And then in the trial, it was like, oh, the gun didn't misfire. He was hiding behind a curtain in her room. Very Hamlet. And then, not Hamnet, Hamlet. Yeah, literally. And then it's not, and then she just got over her opium addiction and was fine. And he was suffering from withdrawal because he was given it for his so- shoulder, that whole thing. And I thought that was cheap. I did not think they needed to, ha- like, instead of just hinting at them being tied together like that, having him there was dumb to get shot. Because how would you get shot in the so- shoulder and not make a sound and there would be no hole in the curtain? See, Yes, I think there were contrivances there, but actually that was one of my favorite moments in the whole book because there was the setup and payoff was incredible because let me tell you, you're reading this long ass fucking book and they tell you that Anna shot her gun in her room and they couldn't find the bullet on like page 100. Let's just guesstimate, like roughly page 100. And you find out that actually Emery had been standing in the room hiding behind the curtain and he was shot that day and just didn't make a sound we'll get we'll get there Aaron and you find that out on page like 700 (laughs) so you're coming you're like oh my god the pieces are fitting together I will say that payoff it did very much give me like haunting of hill house vibes when you find out something small in the first episode and then it comes back later I just thought this was cheap I I was like, okay, it is like a bit of a contrivance because they ask him like, okay, you got shot in the shoulder. And he says, yes. And they said, and you didn't like scream or anything. And he says like, I was so in the throes of my opium addiction that I snuck into Anna's room to take her opium. And I like knew that if I made a noise, they would catch me and I wouldn't get it. So I didn't make any noise. And I was like, okay, realistically, is that how it works? Not really. But I'm just like, I'm happy to accept like a small storytelling contrivance. So I just like let I just let that one roll off my shoulders, it, essentially. It didn't work for me because I was excited for that magical realism because I thought that's how the astrology was going to tie in more. Okay. See, I didn't have that expectation. So I miss I did not have that. You didn't like read it the same way. No. Well, I wanted that. And so that was a huge letdown. Also, in the synopsis, it's like a ghost story. So I'm like, ooh, fun. Something different than what we've been reading. A little magical realism. No. No. So I was really disappointed. Okay. Well. And again, I just thought that was kind of cheap. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's it's a dense book. I The way that I read it, because Aaron read it basically in two like big fat sittings. Yeah. And I did not have a plane ride to read it on. <laughs> you sadly didn't go to Japan. <laughs> RIP me, I stayed home. But I was like, okay, it's a roughly 800-page book. I'll read 100 pages every day. I'll be done in eight days. And I, the first couple parts were 
a bit of a slog. You had read it already, and I knew you didn't like it. Mm -hmm. So I was like, okay, it is slow in the beginning, because it is slow in the beginning. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to get through it. It's fine. And it wasn't a terribly written book, so I wasn't, like, suffering that way. It's a nicely written book. But the more and more I went back to it, I was looking forward to picking it up. And we were getting more info, and there were more twists and turns. And so by the end, it mm-hmm. it was so intricately constructed. Like, you know that she must have had, like, a conspiracy board with, like, names She had the red string. The red string. Exactly. Like, I... Eleanor Catton, is, if you want to come on the pod and show us your red string. Oh, my gosh. This is one of the kinds of books where, like... We could, I could have closed it, gone back to the beginning, opened it up again, read it a second time, and then picked up a bunch of new stuff. Like, this is the type of book that is, like, a graduate English college professor's dream. And so I think that's just inherently some people, like, you didn't like it. No. And that's, like, this is not a book for everyone. It's and not. And I don't even mean that, like, some people just won't get it. Like, this is just a book Some that, people like, won't like it. And that's you don't fine. Like it, then you don't like it. And I just ended up liking it. I think I gave it a 425 on Storygraph. But I'm glad that I read it. And even though I've, I've gained a new appreciation for it since doing all of this research, mm-hmm. which I agree you shouldn't have to, but yeah. I did enjoy doing it. Yeah, that's fair. Um, one last thing I did want to touch on that was very off-putting and made me uncomfortable. I think even more so finding out that the setting wasn't entirely necessary to the plot. Yeah. Well, because we have a historical fiction podcast. We like to, we like the emphasis to be on the history. Yes. But something that made me uncomfortable in this book specifically was how heavy handed the racism towards the Chinese characters were. Yeah. For something where the setting wasn't that important, you don't need to be throwing around the C word that much. No. It was. Of the 12 characters, one of them was a Maori man. Mm -hmm. And I would say he was not that involved in the story just because he like, he did not provide a service that the other men needed. Yeah. Like, you had, like, one of the men was the opium dealer, and one of them was worked at the bank, and, like, yeah. they were just interconnected that way, and the Maori man was kind of... He was, like, like, a tour guide in the area. He was more of like. an incidental actor yeah. in the rest of it. But there were these two Chinese characters who were very involved, and it was very explicit racism, which, you know, like, good for her for not shying away from what that is, because that's I, I, probably a realistic depiction of and what it that's, was like. that's one of the things I struggle most with with historical fiction, is, like, of course people just spoke like this at Mm. different times. And of course, that was realistic. However, how much of that is necessary necessary for your book? Yeah. It was like every other page at some points in the novel. And it was making me really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So that, I think, was another big issue for me. Um, Especially finding out the more we researched, the more that she was just like, oh, I wanted to do a different setting to focus on it kind of seemed like yeah, it an excuse to include all of that. Yeah. We have read, not all of the authors of the books that we have read have had an insanely personal connection to all of their like yes. source material. Like on one end of the spectrum, you have someone like Yaa Jesse, mm-hmm. who is demonstrating the the consequences of the transatlantic slave trade and the resulting African diaspora. That's the whole point. Yes. Like, otherwise, you know, she wouldn't have written a book at all. Uh, You have Ingrid Rojas Contreras, who is writing about her own life, just Mm -hmm. fictionalized. And then you have someone like Taya Cooper in The Cartographer's Secret, who in her author's note was like, I got really fascinated 
by these female Dutch map makers. Yeah. But I wanted to write a book that was set in Australia, so I had to find out if there were Australian map makers yeah. that I could write my book about. And this falls more on that end, because like yes. we said, she obviously did a lot of research, so it's not like she just made a bunch of shit up about mm-hmm. this area. It's in a town that still stands, and the town obviously likes the book because they have a quote on it on yeah. the website. But I think even with that and... Obviously, I don't think her intent was to be like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, like, put all of this in there just because I can. Because it was realistic for the time. Yeah. However, it was, it didn't seem essential enough in the plot to keep harking on it Mm -hmm. and keep, like, emphasizing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we said spoilers. One of the Chinese men is murdered by one of the white characters. Mm -hmm. And that was that was hard for me to stomach. Yeah. Like, I think it was, like, that's not the type of thing where I'm like, you can't put that in your book. No. But it, it was hard to read. Yeah. Just narratively, the the consequences of... Just narratively, it was it was sad. It was yeah. hard to stomach. In it a was. way that would it... In a way that it was not true of the murder of the white man in the book. Yeah, exactly. It's just another layer. But, yeah, so I think overall that kind of led to a lot of issues with the characters for me just because it was so like continual yeah um and even in the historical setting it was still a lot to stomach it don't i don't feel like it was relevant thematically Mm -hmm. and could have been chopped down a lot and maybe that would have cut away from the 832 pages yeah like i said before like Obviously, a lot of changes would have to be made to the story if it was set somewhere else because a lot of it hinges around stolen gold. Yes. Like, that's the impetus for all of this stuff, basically, is, like, $4,000 worth of stolen gold. But if if you just made that MacGuffin something else, mm-hmm. you could set it somewhere else. You could, yeah. And that also leads me to the question of, I wonder how much of this would be cut out in the TV show version. Yes. And should we watch the TV show? I kind of think that we should. I kind of want to see it to see how different my opinion would be from the book. It's a mini series. All I can, I didn't go crazy deep into the lore, but what I did see implied to me that it was not the same plot quite as the book. So okay. I think that there are pretty decent differences. I think it focuses more on Anna than the book. Okay, and I think I would like that as her being the only non-villain woman in the book. Yeah. So Maybe that's something we can watch and review and talk about during our season break. Plot twist, and then you like it and I hate it. Oh, that would be even better. All right. Um, time to rate this book. Let's rate. So we're using our star calculator, as always, created by our amazing data scientist, Ashley. And this calculator takes into account historical accuracy, vibes, prose, originality, and characters. So I'll get started, um, simply because I have my numbers in here and you don't yet. Historical accuracy, I gave it a four. I don't think there was anything necessarily wrong or inaccurate, but it's kind of the whole, like, like you just said, if you change the gold, it could be set anywhere. So I don't think the setting was as important. Um, For vibes, I gave it a one. The vibes were terrible. Prose, I gave it a two. I thought the writing was just a little stilted at points for me. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing because it was a lot of characters recounting their story. Yeah. But just how it read for me. Um, Same with originality. I think think the concept of the book was, was original, but the format and pacing and the characters constantly recounting their stories and going back and forth got really boring for me yes especially that first part i agree that first part is the most of a slog because you're hearing each of the 12 characters recount essentially what happened to them like on that day so you do the day 12 times 
Yeah. And it, so it's pretty heavy. I know I'm taking originality a little different there, but who it's cares? Interpretation. And characters, I gave it a one because I hated them. So my final score is two, which is what I gave it on Storygraph. Okay. Well, I for historical accuracy, I also gave it a four. Like you said, nothing was wrong. It wasn't utilized intensively. Yeah. Uh, vibes, three. I liked the vibes towards the end more and more. It was kind of a weird thing where I'm like, I'm not sure I could put my finger on my favorite parts of this book, but I'm looking forward to reading my 100 pages today. Okay. Um, but it's better at the end than at the beginning. The vibes pick up as they go. Pros, four. I enjoyed it. I thought it was good. Originality, I gave it a five. I don't know anyone else who could construct a book like this again. It was just so intricately interwoven. The... Uh, integration of the astrology, yeah. the different sizes of the parts, the number of parts. I thought it was, ex- you know, extremely, extremely original. Uh, and characters, I gave it a four. What the hell? You know? <laughs> who cares? Do I like them? No. Like, but I don't want to be best friends with a lot of people who we read books about. So, you know, whatever. <laughs> so that average is... Um, except for maybe Hamnet. Well, you know, R.I.P. Hamnet, you would... Maybe have liked the luminaries. You would have been. You could have been a tiebreaker. Um, So that averages out to four. I gave it a four two five on Storygraph, so it's a little bit off. But given the capabilities of the calculator, not that bad. Not that bad. All right, and now we're going to move into a special segment of the pod, which is where we're going to rank all of the books from this past season. All twelve. Erin, I am very excited to see where we differ because I know that we will. Yes. So what I think we should do. We read 12 books this season. So first, I think we should say how many fives, how many fines, and how many flops we had. Okay. Erin, you go first. Maybe we might differ a little in what we want to... At the end of the season, because I know we said in individual episodes, what's a five, what's a fine, what's a flop. That's like a collective ranking. This is like, now going back through it in comparison to all the others, I'm going to broaden a little bit what I consider a five and what I consider a flop. So I have... Four fives, four flops, and four fives. (gasps) Four, 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 angel numbers. It's completely even? Yeah. Okay, that's crazy because I have (laughs) two fives, three flops, and seven fines. See, I kind of did the opposite. I, like, tightened the (laughs) reins. And I've said this before. I have a little bit of issue with the fine rating because I think it encompasses a lot. And that is evident in what I have decreed a fine Mm -hmm. but that is where i have decided to go okay that's fair so where do we want to start should we go bottom up yeah let's go bottom up let's leave the best for last and we'll alternate doing let's not do our whole list because that would get lost and we would lose the comparison Mm -hmm. so let's do three at a time so aaron's give me your 12 your 11 and your 10 and then i'll give you mine this might be in a different order but i think it's the same three 12 the spy 11 mexican gothic 10, Cartographer's Secret. Yeah. And for me, I have three flops. Those are my three flops. So, except I am 12, The Spy, 11, The Cartographer's Secret, and 10, Mexican Gothic. Hmm. So let's talk about here, what made you put Cartographer's Secret higher than Mexican Gothic? There was a dog in Cartographer's Secret. Big pro for me, personally, as a member of the dog community. There were multiple dogs. They just had the same yeah, name. There were multiple dogs. But in all actuality, what I thought the difference was for me was, as I said in the Mexican Gothic episode, there were too many similar forms of media that did it a lot better than mm-hmm. Mexican Gothic. 
honestly, that's kind of interesting because I agree, but that's why I put Mexican Gothic higher because I think the idea of it was really good. I don't think anything was that special about the idea of the cartographer's secret. You know what's really funny to me? If we were judging these books and this was a ranking of book covers and not book contents, the spy in Mexican Gothic would be number one for me. They would be really good, honestly. They're okay, so pretty. Let me let me recall back to the list. I only think A Land Remembered had a bad cover. All of these covers are actually pretty nice. Okay, that's fair. None of them were bad. Some of them were fine. Some of them were just fines. Yeah. Some of them were fives and some of them were Well, flops. Land Remembered does have multiple covers if you're getting the student edition versus the other editions. Okay, the one that I had was the brown okay. with the little circle. The other one has horses on it, so. Okay, okay. well, that depends on how you feel about horses. Okay. Let's go nine, eight, seven. Okay, I think that some crazy differences might happen here. Okay. Let's see. You go first. Oh, okay. <laughs> nine, the henna artist. <gasps> Eight, a land remembered. Seven, Chintu. Nine, still within the flop category, the luminaries. <laughs> Eight, <laughs> now we're moving into my finds. Eight, a land remembered. Seven, Chintu. Okay. Mm-hmm. So we both have one that is like way lower on mine than yours, vice versa. I don't know if you heard my gasp for that. <laughs> And I think the gasp was warranted because I remembered, like, doing this list. I kept a running list. Like, I added each book to it as mm-hmm. I read it. And I was like, you know what? A Lamb Remember was better than the Hannah Artist. I remember when you told me that. I gasped. Here's the thing, for me, at least. A Lamb Remembered was at least camp. Like, that <laughs> book is insane to Yeah, read. okay, that's fair. The Henna Artist wasn't terrible. It was my first find. It was not a flop for me. And the henna artist, you only had one really good character. Yeah. It was just giving like fine. Both of those books were fines, but but A Land Remember was a crazy fine. They were. Henna artist was a flop fine. It was like boring. I don't think the characters were great, but they made me feel very strong emotions. Exactly. The henna artist didn't do that. Okay. That's fair. And you hated the luminaries and I liked it, so no surprise there. <laughs> yep. And we're at six, five, and four. So four is going to be where my five start. Okay. So I have Fruit of the Drunken Tree at six, the henna artist at five, Hamnet at four. Woo! Which killed me not to put Hamnet first because I love him. <laughs> Hamnet is the icon of the podcast, even he if is. it's not the best book that we read. That's true. Okay. So then I had six Hamnet. Five, Fruit of the Drunken Tree. Okay. Four, The Luminaries. All of those are still fines, but they're, like, getting better. Getting better. For Hamnet, I just can't discount that, like, the beginning was not nearly as good as the end. That's fair, right? Um, It got better once Hamnet died, and that's not to be a slight to Hamnet. (laughs) Fruit of the Drunken Tree, I think we had similar opinions on it. I think I liked it a little bit better than you. But The Luminaries, I know for a fact that I liked better than you. Yeah, The Luminaries um, hate crime against books, honestly. Again, part of it could have been me reading most of it on a flight to Japan off to Benadryl. But, However, you know? that means if I'm doing my math correctly, we have the same top three. Yeah, and I, I'm pretty sure we have different order. I, do oh, you want to kick us do. off? Sure. Okay, so I have three homegoing, and then my top two are my fives. Two, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, and number one, Violetta. Okay, my top three are all fives. Three is Violetta, two is Snowflower, and one is Homegoing. Oh my gosh, our Snowflower rankings are old Sames. We, we literally are so old Sames, Grace. Um, we really didn't differ that much. No, I knew that we would have the Luminaries be in a wildly different place. Yeah. I told you right before we turned on the microphones, I was like, I want to know what 
if anything else, we're going to have in a wildly different place. And we kind of did with the henna artist. The henna, I had also, not wildly different, Cartographer's Secret and Mexican Gothic being flipped. However, I think it's significant that they're flipped on us. Yes, I think so too. It just shows it's our priorities. Yes. I am not surprised the generational novel won out because that has been your theme for the season. That is my favorite. And honestly, Snowflower, let's give it its chops. First, like it being the second book that we read. Yeah. And it stayed up there on the list almost until the very end. Lisa C., we really want you to come on the pod. You liked one of our tweets one time and it was the greatest day of my life. Oh my gosh. We need we need to read her new book that just came out. Yes, definitely. Lady Tan's Circle of Something. I've heard mixed things. Well, maybe those are just in the, haters. In the historical fiction book group I'm in on Facebook, <gasps> the users have differing opinions. Okay. Well, they don't know Lisa C. like we do. Yeah, we're so. Lisa C. day one stands. Okay. So I feel like let's wrap up being a little bit poetic here. Let's... Okay. Tell me why Homegoing was your favorite. It's not just the generational for me, but it's how the history was woven into the story that so many elements were tied into it, and yet it was still the passage of time. One thing that was important in one chapter fades away by the next. And I thought that was just so beautifully done. And I loved Violetta. I didn't expect to love it as much as I did. But to me, Isabel Allende, she is so clearly someone who just writes as a second nature to her. Like she doesn't have to try. This beautiful prose just comes out of her. And I loved seeing one interesting, complex, central female character Mm -hmm. exist and change through the world as the world changed around her. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. And look at us finishing up with the history. Yeah, two very different reasons. You focused on one specific character. I focused on many different ones in our priorities. And they both did it excellently. Yeah, all of these. I would say the top six of, we both think the top six of our respective lists are like amazing. Yes, I would recommend, yeah, actually I would just recommend the top six of my list, I I think. I would recommend, it's hard for me, I'm going to recommend the Luminaries, even though I didn't like it, and you may hate it if you read it, mm-hmm. but if you don't hate it, you will really like it. There are books that I would blanket recommend to everybody, and there are books that I would recommend to certain types of people. Yeah. Like, I think there is a person that I would recommend Chintu to, and there is a person that I would recommend The Henna Artist, even though I wasn't a huge fan, mm-hmm. but I would not recommend those books to the same person. Yes, I completely agree. Sadly, that brings us to the end of season one. Can you believe it? I can't. I can't believe we did it, honestly. I'm proud of us. We're going to miss it so much. But we're so ready for season two. Yes, we're not going to miss it that much because in a few weeks, we'll have a few bonus episodes for you guys. Some fun topics that we've discussed on the pod a little bit and some that we haven't discussed on the pod. Yes, so we're not going to be reading new books. These Mm -hmm. will be shorter episodes, but we're going to take a few weeks break, hit you with some bonuses, maybe another few weeks break. But you're going to want to listen to the bonuses because we're going to tell you when season two will be dropping. Yes. And also make sure you're following us on social media at Fiverrflop underscore pod for all that information as well. Yes. And if you have any questions, you can email us at Fiverrfloppodcast at gmail.com. And until then, happy happy reading. reading.